he has spent the last seven or eight years watching as one Republican leader after another has, in his view, sold out their principles to rally around this brazenly unqualified and unstable demagogue. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, your host and the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. We've got a great guest for you this week. I am joined by McKay Coppins, a reporter and the author of a new biography, Romney, A Reckoning. The book sketches the life of Mitt Romney, most notably his shift from standard bearer of the Republican Party when he won its nomination for president in 2012 to a pariah when he was elected to the Senate as one of the few Republicans in Washington who publicly opposed then-President Donald Trump. We discuss the book, Romney's private thoughts on the Republican Party, and his plans for 2024. McKay, how are you doing? I'm good. You know, just uh, on the tail end of the, the book tour here. So uh, increasingly exhausted, but I'm having fun. <laughs> so to start, tell me why you set out to write this book. What was the genesis of it? I read it over the weekend. It's fascinating. It's really, really fun to read, um, which I didn't think I would be saying about a biography of Romney, but it's like, it's it's truly fascinating. So t what was the genesis of, of the idea to write this book and, and why you set out to write it? Yeah, so I had covered Mitt Romney uh, off and on for, you know, more than 10 years when I approached him about writing this book. And you know, as a presidential candidate, I'd covered his campaign and, you know, he, he was always sort of hyper controlled and disciplined and stuck to his talking points. And um, I always sensed there was more going on beneath the surface, but just had no access to it, you know. Um, and, and so uh, after January 6th, I had profiled him when he arrived in the Senate for the Atlantic and we had kind of kept in touch. And after January 6th, I could sense that some of that, you know, angst that was often kind of bubbling beneath the surface was coming to the surface. And uh, he seemed like he was in this sort of soul searching mode. He was introspective. He was uh, grappling with difficult questions about what had happened to his party and to uh, to the country and uh, and you know was asking difficult questions of himself about his own career and so for a writer that's like the perfect place you want your subject to be in right <laughs> um, so I basically asked him you know I would like to write a biography of you I think you have a lot of stories to tell I think you have seen a lot and said relatively little about it in public. Um, but I sort of told him, I, I only want to do this if you feel like you're ready to tell those stories and be fully candid, because the, the worst case scenario of this book is, you know, if he was still very cautious and trying to protect his relationships. And, um, and luckily for me, he, he was ready to be very candid. <laughs> I, <laughs> I could, I could tell, Pretty early on, you know, the first couple of interviews, he was very, very candid um, about, you know, he, I think it was in one of the very first interviews, he told me a, a very large portion of my party doesn't really believe in the Constitution. And that, that is not the kind of thing you would hear Mitt Romney say in public. And it was kind of a, a revealing moment for me. A couple of weeks later, he, he texted me and said, hey, I'm going to send you something that might be useful to look at before our next interview. 
And I looked at it and it was just hundreds of pages of his personal journals. Um, and <laughs> from that point on, we were, we were off, you know, like he gave me his journals, his email correspondence, text messages with Mitch McConnell. Like he, he was, he was just handing everything over and, and I had full editorial control over the book. He, you know, he let me basically, uh, write what I felt like I had to write and he couldn't veto anything. So that, that's sort of the genesis. It's very unusual to have a subject that is that open. I know that was one of the, one of the most. I think one of the best elements about the book, aside from your analysis, which I thought was great, of him and the Republican Party and American politics and how it's shifted over the years, is the fact that he was so candid. I mean, he truly gave you his unvarnished thoughts. And then you mm -hmm. paired that with all of these personal communications. You got his journal, from what I understand, which he started in 2012, I think, all the way through through now, mm -hmm. which is obviously an, an, an incredible insight into anyone that you're writing a bio biography about. Uh, why do you think he chose to give you access to all that? Is it because, because I think in, in, in a couple parts of, parts of the book, you note that he, actually repeatedly in the book, that he, at certain points in his career, had to stay silent, particularly after the ascent of Trump and his takeover of the Republican Party, where Romney had to, to stay silent, but then he's screaming in either emails to his advisors or his personal journal, like saying the things he truly wanted to say say was did did the do you think he had like one last chance to give like a primal scream where he could really be honest with with someone about what he felt about politics at the time yeah it, it's a good question i mean I, I would say earlier in his career especially he was often holding in what he really thought you know especially as he was trying to be president presidential campaigns demand of their candidates basically that they censor themselves and he was right. constantly censoring himself right um with the rise of trump he would sort of alternate between being an outspoken critic but then especially once he first got to the senate he he thought that he could sort of just ignore trump like he had this idea that he could steer the party away from trumpism in part by just ignoring Trump altogether, right? Yeah. Uh, he said, like, part of the issue is that we're all just constantly obsessed with Donald Trump and we're <laughs> responding to everything he says. And uh, I'm just not going to deal with him. I'm going to, you know, have my own agenda and I'm going to push that and I'm going to try to enable and empower other Republicans to return to old fashioned conservative values. No one uh, you know, has accomplished that. To, well, to this he, day, he, it's impossible. <laughs> it's it's impossible. Even now, when Trump isn't in office, he's in right? Mar-a-Lago, and we still can't. Like, yeah, it's crazy. He, he's he's the object around which all of our politics orbit, right? Mm. And Mitt Romney realized that, um, and you know, he kind of was forced into this situation during the first impeachment trial, where he was one of the only Republicans who who approached that trial as a trial instead of as kind of a political process where you just defend your, your party. Um, and so <clears throat> I think he gave me his journals and, and he opened up to me. Yes, probably in part because he was ready to sort of unburden himself. He had been so disciplined for so long. Uh, he was sort of ready to say what he wanted to say. I think also, frankly, he was just like alarmed by what he had seen behind the scenes, especially mm -hmm. in the Senate during the Trump years. Like he experienced and witnessed a level of hypocrisy and cynicism within his own caucus that uh, alarmed him. And, and especially after he saw the 
kind of most dangerous consequences of that cynicism and hypocrisy on January 6th, where, you know, his colleagues are knowingly lying to their constituents about the election being stolen and um, seeing, you know, a mob break into the Capitol because they've been lied to uh, and Mitt Romney kind of narrowly escaping that mob, I think sort of shook something loose in him and he wanted to, you know, issue a warning, right? Like he wanted to kind of tell Americans what he had seen, what was happening, and because he's very concerned about, uh, you know, the fragility of American democracy. He's not sure like how long this project can sustain itself if we're, you know, if, if mobs are being incited by uh, um, like, you know, uh, lies and, and, you know, partisan posturing. Yeah, you know, that that's one of the most interesting parts of the book is when Romney gets to the Senate and he's gone from being, you know, the standard bearer uh, of the Republican Party and its nominee for president in 2012 to, in a lot of ways, a pariah in the party uh, because of his vocal opposition mm -hmm. to to Donald Trump and his votes uh, for his impeachment. And then he saw that there were these people in the Senate, the otherwise very smart people, senators that served with Romney. And, you know, and media figures who supported him in 2012, who were doing things like supporting Trump's lies about the 2020 election, even though they would privately concede that those were nonsense. And even after those lies sparked the riot on January 6th, you know, I thought one of the most interesting examples that you have in there is Mitch McConnell, who's obviously mm -hmm. an incredibly smart man, uh, incredibly successful politician. And you have him comparing Trump to Mussolini. He said he told Romney that Trump should have been impeached. I think in the first. Sorry, wait. I'm going to jump in. That that was actually Kevin McCarthy who called oh, okay. him Mussolini. Even Trump better, McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then but but McConnell came up to Romney yeah. and said, uh, you know, Trump is an idiot. Uh, he right. doesn't think when he speaks. Like th these are two of the main congressional Republican leaders who who privately just hold Trump in enormous disdain, right. but publicly are like, you know, pledging their loyalty to him every day and defending him and doing his bidding. And that was just so like deeply upsetting to Romney. Right. right. Like just how big the, the gap was between what his fellow Republicans said in public and what they said in private. And also, you know, someone like Mike Lee, who Senator of uh, Utah, who I, I believe it was Mike Lee and Ron Johnson, Romney described, who opposed a promising bipartisan gun control bill after the Uvalde massacre and were explicit behind closed doors when they were talking to uh, their fellow senator, uh, Republican senators that the only reason that they were opposing that bill is because it was a midterm year and they didn't want to make a bad vote. Uh, so I think... I, you, you can see that the book really traces Romney's disillusionment with the party. I'm wondering where mm -hmm. he stands now with the Republican Party. Obviously, he he's not going to run for reelection. And you, you kind of, I think, suggest in the book that that's because he doesn't see he, he, he doesn't think that as the party one, he may not get reelected. Re and two, he doesn't think that the party is in a place where he could actually make any change. Right. What? What does he think of the Republican Party now? I think he's in, increasingly alienated. I, I mean, 
he still identifies as a Republican mm. right now for the time being. But by the time we finished our interviews, he was openly talking about leaving the party, starting a third party. Um, you know, he, he he said, you know, I have been alarmed to see how quickly the, the Republican Party has shed thoughtful, considerate people. And in his view, that what's left is kind of this core of what he calls angry, resentful individuals who and institutions in the conservative media and in politics that seem designed to keep them that way, right? Um, his sons don't don't identify as Republicans anymore. Um, you know, a lot of his best friends and and lot most kind of long term advisors have have effectively left the party. Uh, he feels pretty isolated, um, and, and part of it is the the kind of ideological transformation that's happened in the Trump years. The party's become more isolationist in foreign policy, more populist, and and you know prone to certain types of culture war uh, in domestic policy. But I think it's also about the personality of the party, the character of the party. You know, he has spent the last seven or eight years watching as one Republican leader after another has, in his view, sold out their principles to rally around this kind of brazenly, uh, you know, unqualified and unstable demagogue, right? That That's how he feels about Donald Trump. And it, I think it's harder and harder for him to feel like he can associate himself with those people and with this party. So I don't know if he'll officially leave the party. I think it's, you know, it's possible. He certainly has talked to me about it. Uh, but I remember one meeting where we were at his kitchen table in his, his house in D.C. And he was kind of describing, I think, something, you know, outrageous that Matt Gates had recently said. And, <laughs> and uh, he had this moment where he kind of just looked at this fixed point on the table in front of him. And it was almost like he forgot I was there. And he said, sometimes I just wonder, how can I be a part of this party? <laughs> and, and I think that that's kind of what's been going on inside his head for a long time. Right, right. He's almost trapped in it now. Did, mm -hmm. how, to what extent do you think that he sees himself as complicit in some ways in, in the decline of the GOP and the takeover uh, by Trump? You dwell on this in the book, you know, and I, I'm always curious as to how how much he has reckoned with that, whether he thinks it's a it, it's a legitimate argument, whether he has made mistakes in terms of, um, you know, cozying up to Trump in 2012. What do you think about that? Yeah, I asked about asked him about this a few different times, and it was kind of in some ways the question that hovered over all of our conversations. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, to what extent was his. Um, early embrace of Donald Trump. And it was a tepid embrace, right? Like he, he accepted Trump's endorsement in 2012. I report about the, the machinations behind the scenes that led to that happening. Romney didn't want to accept his endorsement. He thought he was a buffoon. Uh, he had actually known Trump since the 90s and thought of him as kind of like this entertaining loudmouth, but not a serious political figure. Um, you know, he goes back and forth on on the Trump element of this in particular. His basic position is that while he he says he regrets if he gave Trump any credibility by accepting his endorsement, he doesn't really believe that um, his his early embrace of him uh, was the reason Trump became president. 
But he does kind of cop to, throughout his pursuit of the presidency, doing things that he wouldn't otherwise do and taking positions he wouldn't otherwise take to court the right wing of his party, right? And right. a lot of the, the stories in the book are about him trying to hold on to his, you know, his beliefs and principles while also feeling like he needed to, you know, do and say certain things to win Republican primary voters in the national electorate, right? And that it was never a perfect fit. Mitt Romney is not a movement conservative. And so it was always awkward. But I think that a lot of those stories are really revealing of, of how political leaders end up slowly kind of morphing into something that they, they that isn't totally true to themselves because politics demands it. I give Mitt Romney a lot of credit for his self-awareness uh, about that and for his willingness to sort of grapple with it um, in a way that very few sitting politicians do. But I think that it, when it comes to Trump, Mitt Romney is in some ways emblematic of the whole sort of establishment wing of the Republican Party, right? For, for so long, Mitt Romney type Republicans thought that they could court and, you know, coddle and indulge the far right elements of their base um, and get their votes, but then stay in charge, right? Mm. The idea was, we'll do what we need to do to keep them energetic and, you know, voting for us. But then after the election's over, we're we're still in charge. And, and what, what happened what's with the Donald harm? Trump, yeah, exactly. What's the harm? Right. And what happened with Donald Trump with, in 2016 is that those elements of the party took over. Took and over. now Mitt Romney is kind of on the fringe, yeah. right? <laughs> There's the harm right there. Yeah. Yeah, no, I do think he's, yeah. I mean, just my personal opinion, but I do feel like he's probably a little bit hard on himself in that regard because everyone enabled Trump in 2016. Everyone in a mm -hmm. position of power, you know, Morning Joe had him on for those like gab sessions. Like it was... It was pretty, you know, CNN did the shots of the podium. It was pretty, it was a pretty universal obsession with this character, this sort of gaudy character. And, and I don't think anyone was really thought that that would well, end up with him in the White House. Well, and, you know, Mitt Romney, and I think this is why he struggles to take on too much responsibility for Trump's rise. Mitt Romney in 2016 remained an outspoken critic and opponent of Donald Trump right. uh, publicly and e even as a lot of the rest of his party kind of lined up behind him once he won the nomination, he also worked extensively behind the scenes, and I report on this in the book, to try to stop Trump from clinching the Republican nomination. And right. you, you can read about kind of all the backstage machinations that ultimately failed, but like he was doing more than most prominent Republicans to stop Trump. And that's why I think that when when this question of complicity comes up, he wants to, you know, sort of like in, engage with these questions of where he fell short and how his mistakes might have led to, to this moment. But he also doesn't want to take too much responsibility because he feels like he's done more than almost any other member of his party to stop Trump uh, right. in, in the last, you know, since 2016. So you uh, one really fascinating sequence in the book is when you describe his experience on January 6th. Uh, he was at the Capitol. Describe that day for us and what he experienced specifically. Yeah, well, it, it really starts a few days earlier on January 2nd. He got a text from Angus King, uh, the senator from Maine, saying, hey, call me. It's important. Romney calls him. And he finds out from Angus King that 
people in the Pentagon have been tracking kind of right-wing extremist chatter online. And, uh, you know, there's some concern about Mitt Romney's personal safety on January 6th, the day that the President Trump is going to hold this big rally to stop the steal, right? Um, but there, but there's all kinds of other threats, right? And so after Mitt Romney kind of is briefed on these threats from, from his Senate colleague, he hangs up and he texts Mitch McConnell and says uh, effectively, hey, listen, uh, I don't know how much you've heard about this, but it seems like things could get really bad on January 6th. And he lays out the worst case scenario. He says there are calls to burn down your home, Mitch, to smuggle guns into DC and to storm the Capitol. He showed me this text. He literally said that. Uh, and he said, you know, I hope that we have sufficient security protocols in place, but I'm concerned that the person who commands the National Guard uh, is, is the one instigating the unrest, the president, right? Mitch McConnell never responds to that. Which is staggering, um, absolutely so, astonishing that he never responded yeah. to that text. So you can imagine four days later when Mitt Romney is in the Senate chamber um, and he's getting texts from his aide, how he how he feels about this, right? So he has an aide who's corresponding with the, um, with, with the Capitol Police and kind of telling him, hey, things are getting pretty bad out here. Uh, I think you should go to your Senate hideaway, which is this small windowless room near the near the chamber. And Mitt Romney doesn't want to leave. He kind of says, let me know if they get inside the building. Then uh, a minute or two later, he gets a text saying they've overcome the barriers. Effectively, they're going to be inside the building soon. So Mitt Romney leaves the chamber, starts to head to his hideaway. And as he's he's walking to the hideaway, he sees a Capitol Police officer sprinting in the opposite direction and tells him, get back inside the chamber. Like, you're not safe out here, get back inside. So then Mitt Romney turns around and starts to run. He gets back to the chamber um, just in time to see the gavel drop and the Secret Service come in and and uh, basically remove uh, Mike Pence from the chamber. And all of a sudden the whole room like turns over to chaos. There's security officials yelling at the senators to get further inside. They're trying to close and lock the doors. Um, and in the middle of all this, Mitt Romney just totally loses it, which is like pretty rare for Mitt Romney, right? right? He's, he's a pretty controlled guy, but he just totally loses his temper, turns to Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. They're kind of a group of right-wing senators who have been, uh, you know, spreading the the lie about the election and he just starts to yell at them and and you know there are different accounts of exactly what he says but it effectively is this is your fault you did mm. this um and, and i think it just speaks to how angry he was about not just you know donald trump lying about having lost the election but how many of his colleagues who he believes, you know, he told me Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are some of the smartest people in the Senate. And right. he said, it is, it, they're, it's just, dis, it's so disingenuous, right? He knows that they don't actually believe the lies that Donald Trump is telling, but they have to pretend to, to, you know, kind of appease the Trump base. And that more than anything drives Mitt Romney crazy. I mean, watching it as a, as a spectator, I mean, we were, you know, covering it. Uh, as journalists, but it was it was maddening enough. I can only imagine being a senator, having warned against Trump's lies, then having warned Mitch McConnell that there could be violence that day, then seeing it happen, and then uh, seeing senators continue 
to try and uh, challenge the election results. I mean, it, I, I can't even imagine how angry I would be if I were in his position. And he still you, gets angry. It's funny. Like oh, every yeah, I time I, I bring it up with him, he like he gets angry all over again. Yeah, like I don't blame him. You know, he, he, yeah, it's well, like he goes back to that moment. What's what's shocking about it is that it's still an open question, right? Like I remember that day mm -hmm. there were, uh, you know, uh, most uh, leaders of the Republican Party came out and said this is explicitly Trump's fault. Uh, you know, Fox uh, hosts on Fox News who had been subservient to Trump for four years said that this was a dark day in U.S. history. And so soon after, within days, that was all being turned around. And mm -hmm. you write that that Romney actually thought that the revisionism of January 6th was almost uh, as bad as the attack itself. You know, one of the people that has been uh, crucial in aiding that revi revisionism is his own niece, uh, Ronna McDaniel, who's the head of the RNC. Uh, what does he make of those attempts from, you know, conservative media, from the Republican, uh, Republican members of Congress, from uh, his own niece to whitewash what happened on January 6th and to, to basically, you know, forgive Trump for that day and, and, and present him now as a palatable a political figure. <laughs> um, I think he's very frustrated by the revisionism. I think he's frustrated mm -hmm. by the conservative media and Republican leaders who seemed to get close to kind of disavowing Trump or disowning him and then went right back to their old pattern of excusing and defending and justifying. The the Ronna McDaniel case is interesting because I, I asked him a few different times about his niece, um, who's the head of the RNC. Mm. And he always, that, that was like what the one person, one of very few prominent Republicans who he would sort of uh, become a little bit more nervous about or, mm. or you know careful about what he said he, because he it, it's a family thing right right um and what he told me is that they don't talk very often about politics they clearly disagree um but there was one moment when he did call her up to kind of confront her about something and it was um i don't know how long after january 6th but the rnc put out a statement calling uh, seeming to call the the riots in the capitol that day legitimate political speech um and sort of defending what happened um and rami was just beside himself that you know mm -hmm. one of the one of the two major parties in america would that its institutional voice would put out a statement like that so he actually called up rana and sort of said what's going on here and she she walked it back and she said you know that is the, the statements being taken out of context, et cetera. And, and the RNC did actually walk it back after publicly a little bit, but right. it's, it's interesting because he said that he, on some level, he, he understood where Rana was coming from, but he felt like the people in the RNC and just all these institutional Republicans who were trying to thread this needle of being not pro-insurrection but still defending donald trump and and <laughs> remaining allies to him they, they were playing with fire right and right. He, he what he told me is that th this is the challenge that we all face as republicans in this era which is that we all tell ourselves if we just you know skirt this line or, or cross this this one line 
it's it, it'll be worth it because we'll be able to stay in our positions of power. And if we lose our positions, then someone really crazy or really bad will take our positions from us, right? And so, so it, it makes sense to kind of do what we need to do to to stay in power. And he said the problem is that. In this era, as a Republican, the line just keeps getting moved and moved and moved and moved. And you you end up kind of taking these more extreme positions that you never thought you would. And I think in some ways, Mitt Romney sympathizes with that because he saw that in his own career uh, earlier on. And and now he's seeing people like Ronald McDaniel and other Republicans do the same thing. And, you know, he understands where the impulse comes from, but he also wishes he could kind of tell them like it's it's not worth it right yeah see as he says to uh, about jd vance a, a seat in the senate is not worth <laughs> selling your soul uh, <laughs> right <laughs> and you know i think there, there's also no question that conservative media whether it's rush limbaugh primetime at box news over the last couple decades created this really tough climate for republican politicians where all compromise is seen as tantamount to betrayal, any deviation from subservience to Trump, treason. And that trend has been growing since, you know, Newt Gingrich was running the show in the 1990s, uh, of course. But the consequence now is that it purges the Republican Party of Trump critics and insulates him from any valid criticism. It does seem like Romney... Mm. D does Romney recognize that? Does what does he think of conservative media, of Fox News, of Rush Limbaugh, and and the effect that they've had on the Republican Party? Yeah, it's funny because he's he he was never a movement conservative himself. So until right. he started running for president, he really didn't pay much attention to conservative media. He told me, you know, I never read the National Review. I didn't listen to conservative talk radio, <laughs> like. He sort of thought all uh, all of that was a sideshow, right? And it wasn't really until his 2012 presidential campaign when he he had an advisor who was basically, you know, his like right wing whisperer who, who told him, like, you need to pay attention to these people. Sean Hannity right. is an important figure in your world now. Right. Um, and, you know, all these magazines and, and radio shows and and Fox News, that they're important. And so when he was running for president, he sort of, you know, would learn to speak their language and he would be on Fox all the time. And he, he did develop like a friendship with or what he thought was a friendship with people like Sean Hannity. And there's a story in the book about how once he became a senator uh, and he was a vocal opponent of Donald Trump's, uh, all of a sudden, all these former media allies in the in conservative media were turning on him. And he was sort of taken aback. He was like, wait a second, I thought we were all friends, right? <laughs> and so there was one one case where Sean Hannity did this like especially withering segment about Mitt Romney on his show, uh, sort of calling him, you know, this guy, uh, like a swamp creature or whatever. And, and Romney thought, he, you know, he's like, I just need to call Sean. We'll clear the air. It, it's fine, you know? And so he called up Sean Hannity and he thought that they could sort of have a friendly conversation about where they disagreed. And instead, he, you know, Hannity immediately tore into him and was saying, you know, why aren't you supporting Trump? Why, you know, why are you doing this? And uh, it got more and more agitated. The, the conversation got more and more heated. At one point, I thought this was funny. <laughs> Mitt Ron, you know, Sean Hannity, and this was early in the process, but Sean Hannity said, 
you know, you're so outraged about Donald Trump. Why aren't you more outraged about Burisma? And, and Romney, who doesn't immerse himself in conservative media, like didn't know what Burisma was shorthand for. And he said, well, what, what's Burisma? And Hannity just exploded and went, how do you not know what Burisma is? I can't think of anything that would make Sean Hannity more angry than a Republican senator not knowing what Burisma is. <laughs> not being ready and on, to- yeah. Yeah, like, how do you not know the time, you know? The latest Hunter Biden thing, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And so, you know, Romney's embrace of and embraced by the conservative media was always, it was always an an awkward arranged marriage, right? Mm. And the fact that they're now on opposite sides kind of makes more sense. But he does now recognize the the kind of the problem of the conservative conservative media, which is that the the increasingly there's no room for conservatives who disagree with each other, right? Right. The, the most popular conservative media is all about maintaining the party line, right? And Mitt Romney has now become a villain in the conservative media and he realizes that and he recognizes how kind of toxic the effect of certain, you know, Fox News hosts and right wing talk radio is in a way that he didn't realize it when he was running for president because they were all lined up behind him. Right. Right, And it's much harder to to see the problems in, you know, a certain structure when it's there to support you. You write in the book about how Romney, I believe, considered a an independent run in a previous election to stop Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey may have been involved. And, you know, I was thinking about that when I was reading this and we saw the, the, the New York Times poll that came out this week that has Democrats all petrified uh, because it shows Trump beating Biden in a number of swing states, five out of the six battleground states that they had selected. Uh, looking forward towards 2024, do you think there's any chance that Romney or do you think he's he's considering even thinking about possibly an independent run or some sort of other mechanism for ensuring Trump does not get reelected because, you know, for all of his disagreements with Biden on policy, he clearly sees Trump as a much greater threat to American democracy uh, than, you know, a a Democrat. I think that's right. Um, I don't know if he has... um, you know, if he would run as a third party candidate, he, he, mm-hmm. he did consider it. In fact, he talked to me about it earlier this year. There was a moment when he seemed to be sort of actively planning a third party presidential bid. There are people in his circle who wanted him to do it in 2024. He ultimately was convinced that any third party bid by somebody like Mitt Romney would inadvertently end up helping Trump. And right. he doesn't want to do anything that would would help Trump or peel votes away from Joe Biden. You know, he disagrees with Joe Biden on a lot of policy issues. But like you said, he he sees Biden as somebody who fundamentally respects the Constitution, uh, is in line with the mainstream of what, you know, an American president uh, should be. And he sees Donald Trump as a real threat and, and a terrible example, right? That's part, part of this is character. He, he just thinks that Donald Trump's misogyny and, and you know, racism and and uh, his constant lying are just a bad example for the country. And there's a trickle down effect. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I wonder what he'll do in 2024. But I, I believe that he will have a very hard time um, staying 
on the sidelines. He's going mm-hmm. to be very committed to uh, doing what he can to keep Trump out of the White House. Which will be be very interesting to watch. Uh, what did Mitt Romney think of the book? <laughs> he re- so our deal was that he could read the book before it was published, but uh-huh. that he couldn't, you know, dictate changes. Right? right. I, I would be the the ultimate arbiter of what, he, what stayed in the book. He could I put his read. fury at it in his journal. <laughs> he could vent about it. If vent he about it in his or, journal. Yeah. Or I told him, you know, if he if there was if he, he wanted to have a good faith conversation about right. things in the book that he disagreed with or thought were wrong, I would do mm-hmm. that. I thought that was a fair, you know, yeah. a fair thing to do as his biography. Um, I think, you know, it's funny, he he read the book uh, over a weekend in the spring. And I thought maybe he would like, you know, kind of hang back and like take some time to process. And the next time we saw each other, he would sort of have his thoughts crafted. Instead, he was live texting me <laughs> throughout, throughout, as he read it throughout the weekend. That which sounds terrifying. Her- Made for a very unnerving <laughs> How terrifying is it to, um, but to no, share? Yeah, I go mean, ahead. I just I wanted to ask how terrifying it is to no, share a sweeping gonna... biography like this with its subject. I mean, I would be petrified. I mean, it is. It's a. It's a weird. <laughs> it's a. It's just a really weird thing. Like he, yeah. um, you know, I, he. I, I I obviously wanted him to feel that I'd done his story justice, and mm. but I also. We just disagree on certain things, and uh, you know I, I, the way I characterize some things. I also interviewed a number of people who weren't Mitt Romney for this book, and he probably disagrees with them on certain elements right. of his life and career. Um, but to his credit, you know, after he read it, we and we did have some conversations about you know uh, things that he thought were lacking context or whatever. But to his credit, what he said in the, said in the end was. This is your book. It's not my book. I could have chosen to write a memoir and I decided not to, in part because, as he told me in our very first meeting, I can't be objective about my own life. Right. And I think that shows a lot of self-awareness uh, yeah. for a political figure of his stature. And and uh, so, you know, there are things he doesn't like in the book, but I think overall it's a fairly, you know, empathetic portrait of a complicated guy who's living in a very complicated time. And uh, I, I think he's made his peace with it. Well, the book is is brilliant. It's it's fascinating. I encourage everyone to go out, buy it, and read it. Romney, A Reckoning by McKay Coppins. Uh, McKay, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. And check out coverage of my conversation with McKay Coppins on MediaIke.com.